today, but the one we're going to read first is Psalm 32. So if you wouldn't mind standing as we listen and and read and, and take in God's Word today, it is His holy, authoritative, and inspired Word for us. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night my hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful psalm that you inspired David to write. And I pray that we would learn from it this morning, that we would be encouraged by it, that you would take it and mold our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, for a brief period of time after God made and created the world, perfect people walked in a perfect world, in perfect union with God, and every physical, spiritual need was fully met. None starved from lack of food or Face disease and the gardens were free of weeds and thorns. And as author Paul Tripp notes, there were no harsh words, no secret plots, fear, guilt, shame, or rebellion against authority. People loved, worshipped, and obeyed as they were created to do. And sadly, all that did not last long. In a moment, everything changed and fear, guilt, shame became standard human experiences. And those who lived in harmony now accused, deceived, and fought for control as sin altered every thought, every desire, every word, every deed. And then if we fast forward to the end of time in Revelation 19, 6, the great multitude of the redeemed stands for the throne of God. And they shout, hallelujah, hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And one last comment from Tripp on all of that. He says, in eternity the saints aren't singing, I got that job. They aren't singing, my marriage was fantastic. Or I was surrounded by great friends and my kids turned out well. They're not exclaiming, I defeated depression and mastered my fears. Two things capture the hearts of the assembled saints. The first is that Christ has won the final victory and his will has been done. 
He reigns without challenge forever, worshipped by a people who have found lasting satisfaction in the person and rule of the Redeemer. And the second glorious thing is that the ultimate celebration has finally come, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so a thunderous shout goes out as the multitude realizes that they haven't just been invited to the wedding, they are the bride. They are clothed in the finest of linen and all the scars and blemishes of sin are gone. And so friends, I want you to to contrast those two pictures. A sin-ridden people living in a broken, dysfunctional society as we see described in Genesis versus the sin-cleansed people living in eternity in the perfect society of heaven that we see described in Revelation 19. Which one more resembles our daily life here and now? Both? Probably, but I'd venture to guess that for many, maybe most of us, our lives tend to resemble the first description more. We start off on the wrong foot, so to speak, or at least with the wrong heart from the very beginning. As we learn in our two psalms today, for example, in in Psalm 51, our other psalm, verse 5, David says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time that my mother conceived me. He says we are born sinful, impure in heart from the very moment of conceptions. He writes more in Psalm 58, 3, where he says, Even from birth the wicked go astray from the womb. They are wayward and speak lies. So he says we're born liars. We don't need to learn how to sin. It comes naturally to us. In Job 14, 1 through 4, we read, Man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He springs up like a flower and then withers away like a fleeting shadow. He doesn't endure. Do you fix your eyes on such a one? Will you bring him before you for judgment? Who can bring what is pure from the impure? And then Job answers, no one. He says we're born impure, we're sinful, and then asks that poignant question, who can bring pure from what is impure? What is the answer? Certainly no person. Especially not the impure individual himself. Jeremiah 20, or 13, verse 23, poses a similar question. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. And so Jeremiah reminds us that because of our sin, we are impure, we're accustomed to evil, unable to do anything to change our true nature any more than a leopard can wash his spots away, or that we can change the color of our skin simply by wishing that it were different. The author of 1 Kings 8, 46 says, there's no one who does not sin. And Solomon in Proverbs 20, verse 9 laments, who can say, I have kept my heart pure and I am clean. Do you see the... See the pattern that we find in the passages of Scripture, Ephesians 4, 17. The impure of heart are darkened in their understanding. They're separated from the life of God because of lack of understanding that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And then Paul says that having lost all sensitivity, that they give themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. And so we find from these passages our situation was desperate. Men and women, don't just gloss over these passages 
These are here to remind us of the pervasive perversion of sin in our lives. And we were that way from birth. Conceived in sin, born in sin, unable to save ourselves, yet God saves us from that state of bondage and death. But some of us have spent decades developing habits and interests and motives and desires and more, and they don't go away easily, do they? And I don't know if you see yourself that way this morning particularly. Some of you young men and women, our hearts are constantly deceptive, trying to convince ourselves that we are good. We're good at least enough to please God, at least a lot better than many people we know. Therefore, we don't need to evaluate our thoughts and our hearts and our conduct. That's what we think. And perhaps you're saying to yourself, I behave myself. I attend church. I'm a Christian. I go to summer camps. Listen to something that Martin Luther wrote. The heart is always ready to boast of itself before God and say, after all, I have preached so long and lived so well and done so much, surely he will take that into account. With men you may boast, he finishes, but when you come before God, leave all the boasting at home and remember to appeal from justice to grace. It's a good reminder. We need to appeal to God's grace, not to his justice. Throughout your entire life, you will have nothing that you can bring to God. If you don't get that point and think that there is some small way in which God has to bless you on the basis of your goodness, even after saving you, then the days will come when you believe that you have to earn His continued favor or that you believe His affection will diminish because your works aren't up to His standards. So what is the hope? The hope is this. Hebrews 12 or 13.9 The heart is established by grace. And then 1 John 3, 21, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. I hope you hear that. We, we hear from David in those Psalms the impurity of the heart. We see the, the confirmation from the rest of Scripture. But God is greater than that. He is greater than our hearts. In fact, He gives us new hearts Ones that desire to glorify Him. And in the end, God is moved not by our goodness, but by our desperation and our delight in His undeserved love. Ephesians 2 presents a good description of that change where it says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's what it was like. That impure heart, that conceived in sin, born into wickedness, you were dead. The Bible says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, the spirit that you see at work in our culture today, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We were just like everyone else, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of God's wrath just like the rest of mankind. 
That was what we once were. But then Paul says, God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. David in verse 5 of, of Psalm 32, what did he say? He says, you, God, forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then Paul concludes here in Ephesians 2 that God raised us up with him. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you see anything wrong in all of this picture? We deserve God's wrath. You saw from the other passages what our hearts were like. You, you even saw in that beginning of this passage in Ephesians 2 that we were dead. We were given over to all of our desires, exalting ourselves, rebelling against the Lord. And yet, it says He raises us up. He is rich in mercy. He has this great love towards us. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the type of news that makes you need to sit down for a moment, right? It's the type of news that just blows you over by the, the seeming inequity, the seeming imbalance of what it is that we deserve versus what God has given us. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And, and then that sin suddenly comes out as it should. It's by grace, by justice. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship. We are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. See how it all fits together? God in His great mercy gives us that new heart. We are His workmanship because He has prepared for us good works beforehand. All of you who call upon Christ, that is true of you. God, before you were ever born into impurity, into an, uh, wickedness, into the desires as it describes in Ephesians 2, like the rest of mankind, God prepared good works for you beforehand. And it should be to your lifelong joy to discover what is it God has prepared for me. I can't wait to see what God wants to do through me. Not just what he wants to do for me. What he wants to do through me. Because what he's done for you in giving you that new heart and bringing you new life has been so that what he can do through you will be accomplished. Remember that. Paul says in Romans eleven twenty nine that God's gifts and calling are irrevocable. That's good news. When God makes a heart pure, it is a guarantee that that person shall see God. He doesn't just start something, lose interest and quit. It's already done, and we have a seat in the heavenlies. And in eternity, we will not only experience fully that great reality, but also continue to grow in our understanding of exactly what it is that God has done. 
That same thing that the angels says in the Bible are looking into this great mystery of God's salvation and mercy towards mankind. We will be understanding in greater and greater measure what God has done. And so he makes our hearts pure according to his will. He does so while we are dead in sin. And there's nothing that we add to the work at any point. It's not as if God starts the process and then we finish it. As David exclaims in Psalm 51.6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. God wants us to be truthful in the inward being. That means he doesn't delight in fake outward behavior. And you only harm yourself if what is on the outside is a facade while there is wickedness inside. And he wants us to realize that if our purity and salvation are based upon our works and our contribution, we would always be plagued by doubts about what it is that we're supposed to add to it. Whether or not we contributed in the right way, we would constantly hold ourselves in this fakeness and phoniness and suspect internally that maybe we had fooled ourselves and our true motives weren't pure. If we think, if you think that you are saved by your decision to accept Jesus as your Savior, how do you know if you really meant it? What do you do when you're weak? Or when you're in sin or when you're plagued by doubt? Do you need to be saved all over again? Friends, we have a religion, a faith-based faith. It is not a religion and a belief system of fear and of pride. Thankfully, it is God, as David says, who purged us with hyssop. It is God that as a result of washing us has made us whiter than snow. And so David can say in verses 1 through 2 of Psalm 32, remember those first few verses, blessed, joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed, he says, is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And in fact, Paul in Romans chapter 4 actually quotes that that passage of Psalm 32. He says, if Abraham was justified by works, certainly he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That's from Genesis. Now to the one who works, his wages aren't counted as a gift, but as his due. Does that make sense? If you work for something, you get paid at the end. So in that same analogy, if you worked for your salvation, your payment would be salvation. But Paul says that to the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. His his belief in that God who saves by grace, apart from works, Just as David, now this is where he says from Psalm 32, also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. 
and says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered, and blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And Paul's point is clear here. Forgiveness from God does not count as a result of your contribution, of your works. Otherwise, forgiveness would be the wage or earnings of your good behavior. And he's explaining that's what David was saying here in this Psalm 32. And there may be some of you that don't quite identify with this joy, this blessedness that David describes. It may be because you are burdened by sin this morning. David tells us in Psalm 32 that God burdens the conscience when we have unconfessed sin. In Psalm 51.3, David says, my sin is ever before me. And in Psalm 32.4, he says, day and night, your hand is heavy upon me. My strength is dried up as by the heat of summer. And he goes on to describe how when we kept silent, meaning when we kept our sin hidden away that, do you remember reading that together at the beginning? That he says, my bones wasted away through groaning all night long. There is a a very real effect of unconfessed sin in our lives. God's hand is heavy upon such a person. It's not to say that all physical suffering is a result of sin, but we must remember and consider if and how sin may be involved in some of our suffering. David, at first, with Bathsheba and and the sin against Uriah, did not confess anything. And, And a lot of these psalms, like Psalm 32, are flowing out of this experience of knowing that he had done what was wrong, but unwilling to confess that before the Lord. And God did not just let him continue on. And as a consequence, David says, I can't stop thinking about my guilt. I can't, I just am losing energy and my strength is drying up as in the heat of summer. And what a contrast, that misery of God's heavy hand upon our conscience is versus what we see in those first two sentences of the psalm. And what is the solution? Verse 5 tells us in Psalm 32, I will acknowledge my sin. I will stop covering my iniquity. We must confess that sin to our God. Look at David's plea in in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment." This is what confession looks like, friends, right there. We begin with that understanding that we are born in sin. We are, even our hearts are deceptive to convince us in pride that it's not as bad as we think. But then God reveals to us 
through his word, through his Holy Spirit, working on our conscience, having given us a new heart to see with clear eyes. And we see this next step in this process where any sin that has gone unconfessed gets heavier and heavier and heavier, and eventually we are drawn to pray to him, blot out my sin, Lord. Have mercy on me. You only ask for mercy when you know that you cannot help yourself. Like the person who's struggled in weakness from treading water so long, he, he, he just feels himself starting to sink beneath the waves. That's the impression here. Help me. I can no longer make it. I recognize, I confess my sin. The good news is that the burden of this unconfessed sin, that bone wasting away, that guilty conscience, that heavy hand of the Lord, those can go away. But you must confess your sin. And so David says later on in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Can you hear a David pleading who has brought about the death of Uriah? Deliver me from this blood guilt, O God, of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. It it sounds just like that middle portion of Psalm 32 that we read where he says, let everyone therefore whom God has forgiven who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place and you preserve me from trouble. When David confessed his sin, when he acknowledged his own sinful heart God's mercy to forgive, and when God actually did forgive, gratitude for and and joy over God's grace actually led David to want to teach others. This is an important aspect of Psalm 51 that we draw out from this. That that is here, we start with impurity of sin. We, We acknowledge that before the Lord. We confess our sin. He forgives us. There's a sense of blessedness, of joy. And what is the natural result of that? We want to teach others. We want to proclaim the righteousness and goodness of God, to sing of God's work and offer prayer. Those are the very opposites of the way we were just feeling a moment ago under the burden and the heavy hand of God. And so Luke 17 is a great story about these ten lepers. It's a familiar story to, to probably most of you. But look at it again. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus is passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he enters a a village he is met by ten lepers who stand at a distance and lift up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Jesus sees them. And he says to them, go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, it says they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. Hear Psalm 51. Hear Psalm 32. 
And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan, of all people. The worst of sinners. That's what the audience, Luke's audience, would have thought. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way for your faith has made you well. And we see in this parable how ten lepers in desperation call upon Jesus. He heals all of them, but only one of them returns in gratitude and falls down in worship. And it's that attitude that Jesus commends. We do not want to take God's grace for granted. We need to regularly remind ourselves of Psalms 32 and 51 in order to remember how we were like these ten lepers. Any goodness that we have is of the mercy of of our God. And I like how we read in the Heidelberg Catechism. It asks this question, since we have been delivered from our misery by God's grace alone, why then must we still be good, doing good? Answer, so that in all our living we may show that we are that one leper. That we are thankful to God for what he has done for us. So that he may be praised through us. This catechism question captures the emphasis of Psalm 32 and 51. And what we've been talking about this morning. It shifts the emphasis away from why do we continue to do good? Not to earn God's favor, not to keep his affection, but because we're thankful for his grace. Because we love him. Like that one leper who comes back to worship, what ultimately keeps our motives holy before God is that we are constantly thankful and convicted by the truth in our inward being that but for God's grace, we would be like the rest of mankind. And so these two psalms help anchor us in the right perspective. B.B. Warfield once wrote, we are sinners and we know ourselves to be sinners lost and helpless in ourselves. But we are saved sinners. That's David writing in Psalm 32 and 51. We are saved sinners. And it is our salvation which gives tone to our life, a tone of joy which swells in exact proportion to the sense we have of our ill-desert, meaning our undeserved mercy of God. For it is he to whom much is forgiven, who loves much, and who loving rejoices much. Did you hear that? For it is to he to whom much is forgiven, who loves much, and who loving much rejoices much. And maybe that all seems rather simple. After all, for those of you who grew up in church, you've heard versions of this in various gospel presentations, but let's stop abstracting for a moment and get really personal. Where are you in the steps that I've described today? Are you stuck in the self-righteousness stage and think that you're okay before a holy God with no real need to confess sin? Are you stuck there? 
Are you in the stage where God's hand is heavy upon you? Are you spiritually empty and dry? Are you burdened with guilt? Are you struggling with thankfulness for what God has done? And are the words of your mouth not words of praise and proclaiming the goodness of what God has done, but rather words of complaint and bitterness and discontentment? Are you at the stage of having confessed your sin and and thinking deeply upon the forgiveness of God and what it means to be made pure, but you're not yet at the point where you're saying, I want to teach others. I want to proclaim this goodness of God. I'm like those nine lepers who God has cleansed and just kept going my way. I just want to be left alone to, to my stuff. If you find yourself stuck, perhaps it's because somewhere along this process, pride has inserted itself, like pouring glue into the gears of a machine. Jesus once said that to enter heaven, you must be like a child. You ever wondered why he said that? The reason why is that unless you can shed those layers of pride and self-sufficiency that come with adulthood so often, the cynicism and weariness that comes with years of disappointment or struggle living in a world that's plagued with sin, unless you return to that, that kind of humility and dependence upon a God in full awareness of His mercy and grace, you cannot see the Lord for who he is, or yourself, for who you are. I sometimes watch as the children of our church come in and they stand next to their parents. And there's, you know, constant looking to the side and the desire to be around. And, and sometimes when someone else comes around, there's the, the inching closer, right, to the parent or the desire to have the hand upon the shoulder. That, that, that affectionate connection. That's a childlike love and dependence that Jesus praises. The Westminster Confession talks about a childlike love that results from the liberty that Christ has purchased us. We become like the leper who runs back and falls at Jesus' feet. Which of the ten are you? Are you the, the one? Or are you of the nine? Are you the one who was thankful and truly comprehended in that moment the grace of God or the nine who simply were in the right place at the right moment? The last verses of Psalm 32 read, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding that needs to be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. And many sorrows for the wicked but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. You, you really have this presented before you. The nine lepers, the one. The horse or the mule that has to have the bit and the bridle in order to stay kind of along the line. Or have you been pulled along with your family, young men or women? Have you been pulled along with bitter bridle? And you would, if it weren't for, for the fact that you're dragged here, it's like, right? That, if it weren't for that fact that you'd wander off, 
Or are you glad in heart and rejoicing, O righteous? Which do you want to be? If you have followed David throughout the entire psalm, you know that when he says, O righteous, and you upright in heart, he is not speaking to people who have saved themselves. You know from those first eight verses and from Psalm 51, he is speaking to a people whom God and mercy has changed and forgiven, but, but he acknowledges that they are now saints. O righteous one. Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding. If you want to be the type of person described in these psalms, you must have a healthy view of how sin affects you. Of how desperately you need God's forgiveness for your sin. Reflect on these psalms. It's, it's, make, make these psalms maybe something that you read on a consistent basis because they describe this entire process from start to finish. Sinful impurity, recognition of sin, confession, forgiveness, joy, proclamation. You can't just want to escape the weak body and dried up bones that guilt over your sin brings. You must also desire to exult in the joy of your salvation and proclaim God's truth to others. And I want to challenge all of you that are here this morning. Some of you are going to return to work tomorrow. Exult in the joy of your salvation. Let that be something that is noticeable to your coworkers. Some of you are going up to camp. Exult in the joy of your salvation and be a model and a delight to your fellow campers. Some of you are going to begin the week of of schooling or, or simply training, ongoing training of children, Some of you may be ready to travel, whatever it is that you're doing this week. Exult in the joy of your salvation. Proclaim God's truth to others. Recognize that you are a sinner, and blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and sins are covered. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would have this this strong and deep sense of our sin. We do not want to be like horses or mules that are pulled by the bit and bridle, who are dragged into church or into life as outward believers and yet inside are joyless, inside are burdened with guilt and sin, inside are unwilling to proclaim your praise. Father, change us, mold us, make us the saints that David describes, the righteous ones that he describes who desire to teach, who desire to pray, who desire to proclaim and sing. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.